Welcome to The Hydrophiles, the HR Wallingford podcast. I'm Sally Jackson and today I'm joined by three of our flooding experts. Emma Brown is a flood forecasting expert who has worked all over the world to help communities manage their flood risk. David Ramsbottom has 40 years experience in water engineering and management and has been with HR Wallingford for 30 of those years. He is an expert in flood modelling and mapping, flood defence planning and the development of flood alleviation schemes. And as a slightly unusual addition to the lineup, we have Stephen Bray joining us. Stephen is actually a wave modeler and a tropical cyclone expert, but in his work, he deals a lot with coastal flooding and predicting how coastal flooding is going to, to affect some of the most vulnerable communities in the world. So um, let's start with the basics. David, why is climate change causing more severe flooding? Well, we know we have uh, global warming and that the uh, planet is warming up and this seems to be causing a number of um, effects. One is that we have sea level rise so that means that coastal areas are becoming more at risk of flooding. Uh, we also have changes in weather patterns so it means that parts of the world that didn't used to have severe floods are now getting severe floods and in addition to that snow melt patterns are changing so again, it means that flood seasons are changing and patterns of flooding are changing in different places around the world. And are the kinds of floods we're seeing different too, apart from the patterns? Well, I think we're getting more severe flooding. We've seen lots of hurricane activity in the United States and in the Caribbean. Um, and we're also seeing places flooding that haven't had severe floods in the past. So it's becoming more difficult to predict where flooding is going to occur and also the severity of that flooding. So whilst flooding comes from a number of different sources, um, I think the overall effect on people is getting worse and more unpredictable. And what are the sort of challenges that these more severe floods bring to communities? Well, more people are affected by flooding than in the past. They're affected more frequently. And as I've mentioned, we're getting into a situation where people are being flooded for the first time. It's not happened before. How are people who work in flood management helping to create a more climate resilient world in the face of these challenges? Yes, we're having to change our approach. I think traditionally we've used flood uh, protection measures, concrete walls, uh, reservoirs, measures of that sort to reduce flood risk. But we're finding that we can't afford to protect every, everywhere in that way. And also it's unclear um, where all of the areas that need to be protected so what we're trying to do now is to um, involve communities more, involve local authorities, and gradually try to spread the response to flooding much more broadly away from just the central governments, also to local communities, local authorities, and introduce the concepts of, well, first of all, making people aware of their flood problem, but then secondly, moving on to try to make their communities more resilient. So as flood modellers, people who predict flooding, clearly you must be looking at climate change all the time. Um, how do you do that in your work? How do you build climate change into the predictions that you make? When we do our flood management work, we, use, um, we look at the existing projections for climate change. And most of these projections cover horizons of up to about 100 years. But we are interested in much longer horizons because we are hoping that cities like London and Shanghai will remain in place far longer than the 
duration of our current projections. And so we need to think flexibly about how those communities are going to be protected into the far future. And we've developed um, an adaptable way of managing flood risk where we look at the, um, the short-term projections and the longer-term projections going up to very high sea level rises, for example, maybe three, four, five metres, maybe looking at much heavier, much more intense rainfall, and then designing measures that will deal with those very extreme events, and then building up an adaptation pathway which takes from where we are now, step by step, to these very severe future conditions. And once you've established that framework, you can then start thinking about what might happen in the next 50 or 100 years, which is much closer to the design lives of interventions such as engineering structures. And the intention is that whatever we do now will be adaptable for what could happen later. And once we've made our plan, we then monitor what's happening, the rate of sea level rise, the amount of rainfall, and that helps us to decide when to adapt what we've already built. And, and therefore, we have to continually update our projections. Now, we've, we developed this approach on the Thames Estuary for the flood protection of London. We've recently applied it in Shanghai for the flood protection of Shanghai. And what we're finding is resistance to looking into the far future because it's just too difficult to deal with. Because actually, you're beginning to think about some quite radical changes to the way we live. For example, some areas might not be tenable in the future. We may have to change the shape of our coastline. In other areas, we might decide to advance the coastline so we can build a new defence along the front of a major city. Because the city is already up to the, uh, the coast, we can't build defences within the city, so we might have to extend the coast outwards. And these are radical changes to deal with long-term solutions. We always think that these horizons are so far away, but I remember working on Talbayla Dam in Pakistan in must be about 2000, and our time horizon was 2025 and 2050. And I just suddenly realised that we're nearly at 2025. And you think of these time horizons as being so far in the future and so hypothetical, but actually they're not. And that's why we have to really take serious account of them and, and monitor the way that David is saying so that we've got with it with our best expertise. I imagine for you Steve it's quite a, a big thing for you to think about as well in terms of working in such large areas it must really bring it home to you the scale of the problem that the planet faces. Well it is and also one of the problems is that climate change is affecting different areas differently um, you know so what's projected to happen to hurricanes in the North Atlantic is not what's predicted for other parts like the Indian Ocean. I mean, in, and there's also some areas which get very few tropical cyclones, which suddenly might become areas where tropical cyclones can occur. One of the first projects I was involved in with tropical cyclones was uh, uh, for Oman, where um, the north coast of Oman had just been hit by a tropical cyclone called uh, Gonu. So that was in 2007. Um, since then, there have been two more tropical cyclones happening around that area. So that does indicate that uh, the activity is increasing. And recently, uh, down the south part of uh, Oman, near Salala, that's been hit by uh, two tropical cyclones re recently as well. 
Um, so that is an area that looks like it's suddenly going from what was a very rare occasion to actually becoming reasonably frequent. You know, maybe once every 10 years. So once every 100 years, now once every 10 years. That's a major change. Emma, I know you've got quite a lot of experience working across the globe, um, but could you tell us a little bit about some of the fascinating developments in flood forecasting that have been going on? Thank you. So, yeah, flood forecasting is a rapidly developing area um, and having to address some of the challenges that David has been talking about. And really the challenges are the same everywhere in the developing and the non-developing world. So um, we're seeing more intense rainfall, um, harder flooding that's harder to predict the timing and severity of, but that's the challenge that we try to address with flood forecasting to work out when and where the flooding is likely to happen, but also to work out what the impacts will be so that we enable communities to understand how they need to respond and what it is that they're responding to. And how does it work on the ground? Do you have a team of people monitoring it? Um, so our flood forecasting system is part of this bigger early warning system concept. And it's just the forecasting component, one of four components. The warning part, communicating the forecasts that are produced by models or um, tools and techniques, the communication of that information is a key part of enabling communities to be resilient to the flooding, ensuring that we're communicating when a flood is going to likely to happen and where it's going to happen and how severe it's going to be, means that people on the ground, the emergency response teams, local communities, police forces, um, non-governmental organisations, a whole disparate group of people can come together to be proactive and ensure that they're prepared for a flood, but also as part of the um, clean-up operation after a flood and the long-term impacts that a flooding has and that need to be addressed. Isn't that quite similar to what you're doing as well, Steve, with wave modelling? Well, it, it's very similar to, to what I've been doing um, with uh, cyclone. Um, forecasting of flooding. Uh, so recently we've been part of a project with a number of partners uh, from UK institutions and we've working, been working for the Foreign Office and we've been forecasting flooding due to uh, tropical cyclones. So, and the purpose of this is to give the Foreign Office a um, warning of which areas will be affected, maybe the severity of the flooding, and that allows them to work with um, um, non-governmental organisations, humanitarian relief organisations, that sort of thing, to get prepared for the flooding and to look at where, you know, where the infrastructure has been affected so they can plan their flooding relief and so on, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, it is very similar, except a bit wider scale and probably a little bit uh, on consequently a lot less detailed than what Emma's been doing. Embryonic, this kind of approach is it something that's going to develop over time? Can you do you have any idea where you how you see this being used in the future? Well, I, I, I see it being developing, yeah. I mean, we've had a, um, a lot more interest um, in forecasting as well, and also, I mean, with forecasting, that's one thing, but uh, another thing that's been mentioned here is um, you've got to know where is vulnerable to flooding so that you can actually prepare. You know, when you get a flood forecast, um, the people on the ground need to know what they have to do. 
So I see, we also see that space technology, so satellites, Earth observations, becoming more and more popular or useful in um, flood management. And it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about that. I think that's certainly true, and it's another rapidly advancing area of technology that we can make use of. Um, it's based on satellite monitoring of the Earth's systems processes and parameters, um, and it's beneficial in a number of ways. So for flood forecasting, um, it gives us a better spatial awareness of what's happening in the catchment, rather than the traditional point-gauged measurements that we have. So rather than having a range of point locations that we know something about, a satellite image can tell us at the same time what's happening all across the catchment. We're now actually able to control satellites so that we can um, arrange that they're taking images of a particular location of interest rather than just a global picture that we um, need to wait for the next refresh, which might be 12 hours long. And in the past, that's been fine for a slow responding catchment, a big catchment, a 12 hour interval between, space, between satellite images is fine. But if you've got a much faster responding catchment from the intense rainfall that we're seeing under climate change, then you need more frequent images. And that is what we're seeing with Earth observation technology, I think. And where's the funding coming from that, for that sort of work? I mean, it sounds fairly new and cutting edge, so it'd be interesting mm. to find, you know, who's, who's, who's interested in that? I think there's a lot of uh, funding coming from European Space Agency, international space agencies, um, the UK Space Agency has funded some work that we've been doing in India, for instance, um, looking at flood impacts, um, a system that we've developed here at HR Wallingford that can bolt onto any flood forecasting system and analyse the outputs and give a summary of the likely impact of that flooding in terms of the population affected, um, the agricultural areas that are affected, the infrastructure um, that's been damaged, um, and just generally the economic impact of a flood, which is real added value, if you like, to a flood forecast. David, I'm going to come back to you, because I thought something you said earlier was really interesting, about going away from building concrete walls um, and sort of working with nature, I suppose, if you like, more. Um, and I know the term nature-based solutions is getting a lot of traction at the moment. It'd be great if you could explain to us how that, how that, what that means in terms of flood management. What nature-based solutions try to do is to mimic natural processes. So instead, for example, of allow, allowing water to flow down a river system, a, a river catchment that may have been heavily developed for agriculture, the idea is to introduce um, measures that will hold the water back in the catchment. I think it's thousands, hundreds of years ago that we started to cut down our trees and basically change our catchments. And also we started to do things like make streams bigger so that the drainage in river catchments was improved and that improved agriculture. But the downside of these changes is that the amount of water that goes down a river has increased and increased flooding. What we're trying to do now is to turn the clock back and start to introduce measures that hold water back in a river catchment. There are also measures on the coast that you can do. Flooding on the coast is, has two main causes. One is just high sea level, pouring over flood defences or pouring over the land, and the other is wave action. So to reduce high sea levels, 
um, we can use sand dunes. We can either enhance existing sand dunes or build new ones. We can build up beaches, enhance existing beaches or build new ones. Um, and also to reduce wave action, we can do things like um, introduce salt marshes, which reduce the depth of water and cause the waves to break sooner and therefore reduce the amount of flooding from the waves. Another thing that we can do in other parts of the world is to introduce mangroves, which essentially are woodlands that grow in the water and they reduce wave action. So all of these things can contribute to uh, reducing flood risk downstream. Yeah, well, I'll just uh, follow up on the, uh, um, as David mentioned, mangroves, the use in, uh, in the tropics, which are in areas which are uh, subject to flooding from tropical cyclones. Uh, so mangroves do live right on the coast. They live in an intertidal zone. So they're the first line of defence, essentially, from you know, high waves or surge. And they, you know, they have extensive root systems, so they hold the ground together. So when a, you know, a tropical cyclone comes along, which we can't stop, we can't prevent the tropical cyclone, but we can limit the damage by and you know, increasing the amount of mangroves along the coastline means that um, you know, the coast is sta more stable and uh, sustains less damage when uh, a cyclone comes through. And then that means that the recovery uh, can be a, a quicker and, uh, you know, um, and better. I, I think it's, what, from what David has been saying and Steve, it's, a, it's really a fundamental shift in the way that we're looking at flooding and the way that we're managing flooding. In the old days, we would simply build some hard engineering solution to protect the community at risk or expect to be protect, protected from all the flooding. But it's recognising that you can't protect against everything with a hard engineering solution and that you need a combination of measures and perhaps need to work with nature to make something that's more sustainable and look more holistically at the catchments so that we're addressing things working with nature but planting trees looking at the way that catchments respond we've got lots more information about the way that catchments respond but we also now can use a range of techniques to slow the flooding down and make ourselves better prepared and more resilient. Oh, another thing about nature-based solutions is that they also can, you know, if done correctly, they require much less maintenance than, you know, hard structures, which, you know, inevitably will, uh, will decay over time. So, you know, it's a long-term solution as well. It's partly about having a package of measures, I think, at our fingertips and not expecting that we can fully mitigate all of the impacts of flooding and learn, learning to live with flooding to some extent, not building things in floodplains, which is still happening in many parts of the world, not citing things of value in places that are at, at risk. So it's about having a sensible approach, isn't it, to flooding, but also having changing people's expectation of what, what should happen and what they can expect in terms of um, flood prevention, I suppose. And, and also, you've, you know, you've got to look at the whole catchment, you know, in one. It's not just looking at individual places. So it might be one town is, you know, has a flooding event, but the actual solution to that is not to just, say, dredge the river through the town. You have to look at a much wider area. You know, it might be the whole, the whole, whole catchment, which would be the overall solution. 
because otherwise you just end up moving the flood from one place to another. Dredging has certainly been a contentious issue in the UK. <laughs> uh, David? Yeah, one of the benefits of nature-based solutions, it provides opportunities for communities to help themselves. So if you do live in a, a community that floods, then by working together, you can develop a package of nature-based measures to uh, reduce the flood risk for your community. And another advantage is they're relatively low cost in terms of capital cost. But the big challenge with nature-based solutions is involving the community, involving the landowners, and getting everybody together to work together to, um, to plan, design, construct, and implement these measures. Haven't we been working in the Cotswolds on a project that's kind of really taken off with the landowner? We have, and what happened there was that there is a, land, a large landowner who owned um, much of the catchment above a particular village in the Cotswolds. I think we can name them, they're the Astor family. The Astor Brewer family, indeed. <laughs> yes, and they have been extremely cooperative. They're very, um, very aware of the flood risk. They're very aware that the water comes from their land and they've tried, they've made every possible um, assistance to nature-based solutions being implemented on their land. And recently we had a, a very heavy storm um, in the middle of this last winter, uh, which caused flooding in quite a number of communities in the area. And having built nature-based solutions on their land, we were pleased to report that there was no flooding in the village concerned. So I understand that project was with the Environment Agency and Wild Oxfordshire, but as far as I understand it, and you'll probably correct me on this, it's a, a, that project could be an exemplar project for other nature-based solutions or natural flood management projects that you could then take and apply to bring down costs, is, is that right? Oh yes, I think what we did, we did some quite detailed modelling to really try to understand how these measures behave. Once you've got an idea of how they behave, then you can implement the lessons in other sites without the need for such detailed modelling. What other things can communities do to reduce their flood risk? Um, well, first of all, it's being aware of the flood problem. So I think, um, I know I've always been very keen on the idea of, um, on the progress that we've made with fire safety, but the awareness of fire safety is very high. Most people now have smoke alarms, and thankfully fires are very rare. But nevertheless, we take the precautions, even though the chances are quite low. When it comes to flooding, we want to get to a position where communities can know what to do, understand the flood problem, and take appropriate precautions. And at the present time, there is a lot of effort going into allowing that to happen. So organisations like HR Wallingford are undertaking research work into making properties more resilient, looking at different ways of draining flood, flood water so that it doesn't come into houses but goes somewhere else instead. We can do that kind of thing, but um, the communities themselves can create a community plan which involves understanding where the water comes from, where it's going to go, how you can prevent it going into properties, and where it does go into properties, helping the property owners or the people who live there to minimise the damage, give them advice. And this is a movement now that's happening throughout the UK, that gradually government departments, local authorities are working together 
to introduce more and more communities to flood risk problems and how they can react. There's a great deal more that could be said, but as a start of the 10. It certainly was. Um, it's really interesting, isn't it? There's sort of loads of amazing ideas sort of around this table, how we can manage our flood risk around the world, locally. How much appetite is there to actually make this happen, do you think? You know, is there is there funding? Is there a lot of interest in it? Or you know, is it something that we're you know we're really pushing at? Um, I, th I think there is appetite. There's obviously appetite for anything that can help communities be better prepared and um, to respond to flooding. But I think there's a real need for evidence for these new newer techniques like the nature-based solutions. In my experience, if you've got evidence that these systems can actually make a real impact on reducing flooding, then it becomes much more persuasive and much easier, I expect, to get flooding, um, to get funding for that. I feel like we could talk all day, so many topics we could uh, cover, but I think we're going to have to draw this to a close, sadly. So um, I just maybe one final thought, one final thought from each of you. What is it that you find the most exciting thing that's happening in your field at the moment? I think the challenge to make nature-based solutions work is exciting because fundamentally floods on, in river systems and inland flooding is about dealing with large amounts of water and how to put, where to put it and how to manage it in a sustainable way. Emma, what's yours? I think probably for me, maybe the other end of things is high tech, not using high technology. So the earth observation tools that we're now able to use in flood forecasting, but also it's just such a rapidly evolving area. I mean, you can use mobile phone signals now to monitor rainfall and it's all really, really gaining momentum. And I think over the next 10 years, the use of extremely adapted and clever technologies for helping us manage these natural processes and understand them, I think that's where it's going to be changing the most and bringing the most benefit, probably. And how about for you, Steve? Well, I think for, for me, it's developing a forecasting systems for uh, tropical cyclones so, and to be efficient uh, over the globe. So, you know, the idea is, and this is what we've been developing, is that an alert comes in from the international uh, organisations that uh, monitor uh, chocolate silicones, and that comes to us. Um, we have our systems all sit set up, um, we just have to push go, and then in maybe one, two hours, we have them sort out saying, these are the areas that might be uh, impacted by flooding, and that can be then useful to the people on the ground. And hopefully that will benefit those people who are, are you know, facing these, these difficult circumstances. So that's it for this edition of The Hydrophiles. Thank you so much to David Ramsbottom, Emma Brown and Stephen Gray for their absolutely fascinating insights on this incredibly important topic of climate change and flooding.